Good morning, Rogers Park. My name is Jamie Borchick. Uh, great to have you with us this morning. If you got a Bible, uh, you can turn or you can turn on your device to Galatians chapter 2. Uh, Galatians 2, 1 through 10 is our text this morning. If you got one of the house Bibles, you can find that on page 972, page 972. And if you don't have a Bible, that's our gift to you. We want you to take it so you have one. So if you're just joining us this morning, we're in the midst of a series we've titled Stay the Course. We're walking through the Apostle Paul's letter to the churches in the region of Galatia. And I need to start with a little recap of that letter this morning, of what we've covered so far, so that we can have some context for where we're going today. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you kind of the, the rundown of what's happened in Galatians up to this point. I'm going to explain what's happening in our text right now. Then we're going to read it, and then we're going to dig into it. All right, so that's where we're going. So you remember a few weeks ago, Paul started off the letter to the Galatians, reminding his readers that there is only one gospel message. And it is the message not about what we do for God, but about what God has done for us through Christ. It was the gospel message of Jesus alone, that he has done everything needed for us to be made right with him now and forever. Now the problem in Galatia was that these false teachers had shown up in the region. And they started preaching this gospel of Jesus plus. So they said, yes, you do need Jesus. Jesus is the starting point of the Christian life. But then you also need to go and get circumcised. You need to keep the law of Moses. You need to do good works. So it starts with Jesus, but it doesn't finish there. You need to keep doing things to make sure you're good with God. It was this message of Jesus plus. And Paul writes this letter to the Galatians to condemn that false gospel. He's writing to make it abundantly clear that a false gospel is no gospel at all. And so in the second half of Galatians 1, Paul began his defense of that true gospel by arguing for its independence. Paul argues that his message, it didn't come from men. It wasn't from men, but it was from God himself. You remember that Paul's life was dramatically transformed when he was on his way to Damascus persecuting Christians, and he met Jesus and he got the message of the gospel straight from Jesus himself, and it radically transformed his whole life. And so Paul argues that for that reason, his message is authoritative. It was independent of men. It was God's gospel, not man's. And so therefore, it was authoritative. But the independence of Paul's message left him vulnerable to another attack. If his message was indeed independent, then the false teachers could argue that it was also different from that of the other apostles who were the leaders of the church in Jerusalem. The, these false teachers were trying to disrupt the unity of the church by saying that the message of Paul contradicted the message of these other leaders. And so in the first part of chapter 2, in our text today, Paul pivots to make the case that while his gospel is in fact independent, it is also identical to that of the leaders in Jerusalem. His message is simultaneously identical, even though it's independent. And so to make that case, Paul tells the story of a visit that he made to Jerusalem to meet with those leaders, to meet with Peter and James and John. And he shares what happened on that visit and how those church leaders ultimately affirmed the gospel that he preached and said that it was, in fact, identical. And, then, and the truth is that when it came to the gospel, their message was not different. It was identical. And they weren't divided. In fact, they were completely and utterly united. So that's what's going on in our passage today. So Galatians 2 shows us that despite the efforts of these false teachers, there was a profound unity among the leaders of the church. So let's read it, 
let's dig into it together. So Galatians 2, 1 through 10. And I'll ask you if you're able to stand for the reading of God's word. Paul writes, Then, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation, and I set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ, so that they may bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised also worked through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas, Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Father, as we open this text today, we pray that you would speak. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear, and would you teach us about unity from it. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can grab a seat. So as we walk through this text today, we're going to see three lessons on unity from Paul's visit with these leaders in Jerusalem. We'll see the importance, the basis, and the purpose of unity. So the first lesson, the importance of unity. Why does unity matter? Well, in verse 1, Paul tells us that he went to Jerusalem with Barnabas and Titus. And in verse 2, he tells us why he he made that trip. The first reason is because of a revelation. He had this revelation from God where God told him to go to Jerusalem. We don't know exactly what that revelation was because Paul doesn't explicitly tell us. But what we do know is that God sent him to go. God told him to go, and so he went. Now, at the end of verse 2, there's this little phrase that helps us understand why God told him to go and why Paul did go. Paul says there that he went to Jerusalem and he set before the church leaders the gospel he proclaims among the Gentiles. And here's the phrase. In order that he might make sure he was not running or had not run in vain. What does he mean? To do something in vain means that it's empty, it's frivolous, it's a a waste. So what Paul is saying is that he wanted to make sure that all the work he had done in preaching the gospel throughout the Gentile regions of the world, he wanted to make sure that all that effort wasn't just a colossal waste of time and energy. But that begs the question, in what sense could his work have been in vain? On first reading, you might think that Paul is concerned with the accuracy of his message. Maybe he preached the wrong message and he went to Jerusalem to make sure that his message was correct. But you'll remember that this is the same Paul who just spent chapter 1 telling us about the independence of his gospel. 
He got the message straight from the source. He doesn't have any questions about its accuracy or authenticity. He knew that his message was correct. So when he talks about running in vain, he can't mean that he was somehow concerned that his message was wrong. And he definitely didn't make this trip to Jerusalem to get the leader's stamp of approval on his message. His message came from God. He knew it was true. So why did he go? Well, here's the situation. The false teachers were trying to divide Paul from the rest of the church. They were hoping that the apostles in Jerusalem would side with them. Jerusalem was, after all, a Jewish city and all the apostles were Jews. And so the false teachers thought that maybe they could persuade Peter and James and John to side with them. These guys were already circumcised. They already kept the law of Moses. They were culturally Jewish. And they thought, maybe the the leaders, maybe they'll choose this gospel of Jesus plus. False teachers thought that they they could get those leaders to agree with them and therefore divide the church. And Paul knew that if the leaders in Jerusalem caved into that pressure, it would in fact destroy the unity of the church and it would undermine all of Paul's labor among the Gentiles. If Jerusalem went against him, Paul's work would be a lot more difficult. And even more significantly, Paul saw clearly that if the leaders sided with the false teachers, it would have resulted in the rise of two virtually different religions. You would have had the gospel of Jesus alone. Salvation is through him alone. And then you would have had this religion based on works that was all about what you do. It would have been two separate religious tracks. And division between Paul and the leaders would have ultimately resulted in the destruction of Paul's ministry among the Gentiles. People uh, People who had come to faith through him hear about the leaders choosing this other route and their faith would be compromised. And so Paul, Paul doesn't want to see that destruction happen. In a different context, Jesus himself summarized the point that Paul is making here in a a passage that many of you will remember. Jesus said this, he said, no house divided against itself will stand. So why does unity matter? Because division destroys Division destroys. Some of you have experienced this in really painful ways in your lives. I can't share the details of this publicly, but over the last few years, there's a ministry in which I formerly served that has been destroyed by division among the leaders. It was a fruitful ministry where we saw many come to faith in Christ and and be sent out as leaders for the kingdom. Something that I, I invested deeply in, and many others did too over a lot of years. But in the last few years, there's been an unresolved conflict between two senior leaders in the ministry. They couldn't sort it out, and so they split. And one of those leaders went and started his own thing separately. And and that division has resulted in the original ministry being largely destroyed. It's been really sad to walk through that. Division destroys ministries. Some of you have been through church splits at some point in your life. You've watched as a church community was ripped apart by division between the leaders or among parties. And some people who are part of that church, they just left. They walked away from the church altogether, even left the faith altogether. Division destroys. And this is true far beyond the world of church and ministry as well. You see it on sports teams where you've got a ton of talent and a ton of ego. You see it in workplaces where cliques kill camaraderie. 
You see it in families where a husband has one set of priorities and a wife has a different set of priorities and the marriage breaks and the kids are left to just pick up the pieces. You see it at a national level in our public discourse right now around the Supreme Court decision over the last couple weeks. Division destroys wherever you find it. In your home, in your office, in your nation, in your church, division destroys. And no mission can survive division. Unity is essential to the mission. It's essential especially to the mission of the church. And because Paul knew this truth, here in Galatians, he shows us a better way. Paul actively pursued unity. This dude walked from Syria to Jerusalem, a distance of 300-some miles to pursue unity. That's like taking a stroll from here to Cleveland. Now, for the record, you should take a walk to Cleveland sometime because Cleveland's a great place, right? The Browns even won a game this this season, y'all. They haven't lost half their games. It's pretty amazing, okay? So you should go to Cleveland sometime. But taking a walk from here to there would take a whole lot of effort. And that's what Paul did in his pursuit of unity. He saw that unity was such a big deal that he went out of his way. He inconvenienced himself to go after it. Paul actively pursued unity. And we need to pursue unity too. Unity is a big deal. And God calls us to go after it. So some of us, We need to make the effort to ensure that division does not destroy in our community. We need to actively pursue unity. We need to walk across the room or pick up the phone or buy a plane ticket to go and see that person to resolve that situation from way back when. It might be with a coworker from a former job or or someone from a former church. Or it might be with your spouse or someone right here in this room right now. Whatever it is, And I don't know your situation, but whatever it is, we need to be a people who, like Paul, actively pursue unity. It's a big deal to God. It needs to be a big deal to us. And so that's the first lesson on unity, the importance of unity. Unity matters. So here's the second lesson. Where does unity come from? This is the basis of unity. As Paul pursues unity, he's not pursuing an artificial unity just based on outward appearances. He doesn't just put up a front and hope that everybody else goes along with it. Paul is not after a superficial unity. No, he is after a deep, substantial, lasting unity. And he shows us in this text where that kind of unity comes from. Look at verse 5. Verse 5, he says, To the false teachers we did not yield in submission even for a moment... So that the truth, the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Paul fought to protect the truth of the gospel because he knew that truth is the basis for unity. Truth was the reason that Paul's trip to Jerusalem was a success. James, John, Peter, and Paul were unified because they all agreed around the truth of the gospel. If they were not united on that truth, they would not have been united at all. In fact, for Paul, there was no possibility of unity apart from the truth. Paul divided sharply from the false teachers. He didn't pursue unity with them. And in this whole letter, it sure seems like he would have been willing to divide from the leaders in Jerusalem too if they had compromised on the truth of the gospel. 
Paul wasn't afraid to draw some hard boundary lines. But he knew where to draw them. And he always and only drew them based on the truth of the gospel. So for Paul, anyone at all, anyone who held to the truth had to be included in the unity of the church. So Paul's traveling companion for this trip to Jerusalem was Titus. Titus was a Greek. He wasn't a Jew. He wasn't circumcised. He was a cultural outsider who didn't fit in socially. But Titus held to the truth of the gospel. And so he had to be included. And he was. And conversely, anyone who didn't hold to the truth of the gospel couldn't be included in the unity of the church. They couldn't possibly be included. And so the false teachers that Paul's confronting here, they were called out and they were excluded. So the principle is this. Anyone who holds to the truth must be included. And anyone who does not hold to the truth can't be included. Because fundamentally, the truth of the gospel is the basis for the unity of the church. And this is where I want to introduce a few categories to help us know where we ought and ought not draw boundary lines. And to be perfectly clear, when I'm talking about boundaries here, drawing boundary lines, I'm talking about doing so for the protection of the church, not not for the sake of escaping or excluding the rest of the world around us. All right, Paul clearly spent lots of time and had deep relationships with people who are not part of the Christian community. And we need to do the same. So I'm not telling you here, I am not telling you to stop spending time with your non-Christian friends. In fact, just the opposite. Go after the mission. Go reach them. Right? Build those relationships. Do not escape the world. But what I am talking about is how we relate to others who self-identify as Christians but who may or may not agree with us or have things in common with us in other areas. Because often in the Christian community, we draw lines, but we draw them in the wrong places. Like Paul, we need wisdom, and we need to be able to draw boundary lines to keep false teachers out for the sake of protecting the church. But we also need to actively pursue unity based on the truth of the gospel. So let me introduce a few categories that I think will be helpful. And the first two of these categories are biblical categories. When it comes to things in Scripture, some biblical truths are clear, while other biblical truths are cloudy. Some things are clear, while others are cloudy. So in Scripture, some things are very clear. For example, there is one God who created everything out of nothing. People were made in the image of God, and we've sinned, and we've rejected him. God is a just judge, like Jason was talking about, who will judge our sin, who will deal with sin, and he will bring justice and righteousness and peace into the world. Jesus Christ is the Son of God who died for our sins and rose again. The Holy Spirit is God's down payment on our future inheritance. Scripture is God's authoritative word. The gospel message, the way that Paul lays it out in Galatians. These things are clear in Scripture. And these are things which all true believers throughout all the history of the church have always agreed As we've studied the pages of Scripture, these clear things have been clear to those who study them. They're captured in the historic creeds of the church, and they're reflected in the foundational documents and statements of faith of most churches today. There are some things that are very clear. And these truths, these are truths which God has made evident to everybody everywhere. And these truths, the clear ones, they are the ones that serve as the basis for our unity. 
So when these things are attacked, when the clear truths are attacked, when someone rejects or denies or seeks to change the things that are clear in Scripture, then true believers have a mandate to do what Paul did and to fight to preserve the truth of the gospel. We need to draw a boundary line to exclude false teachers. We can't yield in submission even for a moment to those, to anyone who seeks to compromise on these clear, essential truths. And we can't have Christian unity, genuine Christian unity, with anyone who doesn't hold these truths. The clear truths of Scripture are non-negotiable. And to put it positively, we must pursue unity. We must pursue unity with anyone who does hold these truths. Because these clear things are the basis for our unity. But there are other things in the scripture that aren't so clear. There are things about which there has been no consensus throughout the history of the, of the church. There are things in scripture which are rather cloudy sometimes. Into this category fall many of the particulars of different theological traditions. Arminianism or Calvinism. Complementarian or egalitarian, positions on the end times or the return of Christ, how exactly the Holy Spirit operates in the lives of believers today, the gifts of the Spirit. In Scripture, these things are a bit cloudier. Genuine believers throughout the history of the church, they've sought the Lord, they've searched the Scriptures for clarity, but they've never come to consensus. And the reason is because, to be honest, Scripture isn't entirely clear. A strong case can be made for different positions, and faithful believers make those strong cases. But we can hold differing positions on these things, or even no position at all. And we can still have a genuine unity with other genuine Christians. Now, this isn't to say at all that we shouldn't study God's word and seek to come to conclusions. We should. And it's not to say that we shouldn't... uh, write clear statements of faith that might distinguish one church or ministry from another. We should. Every believer in every church needs to wrestle with God's word and come to conclusions. Now, if you want the right answers, you can come and talk to me because I've got them. (laughs) But in all seriousness, in our wrestlings, we may come to different conclusions on some of these cloudier issues. And that's okay. It doesn't mean that we can't still, still have a deep, substantial, lasting unity. And so over the summer here, our church joined with churches all across the north side of the city for daily morning prayer and for several outreach and service events in the community. And I would venture to guess that on some level, we would disagree with some position taken on some question by every single one of those churches. We wouldn't be totally agreed on everything with any one of them on those cloudier issues. And yet, when we gather together for prayer or to serve in our neighborhood or next Saturday when we come together for the men's breakfast, our deep unity over the clear issues of the gospel truth far transcends and surpasses whatever murkiness exists in the cloudy issues where we don't agree. We can still have a deep unity with people we don't see eye to eye with on certain cloudier issues. And our positions on the cloudy issues of Scripture should never divide that deep unity with other believers. 
We need to remember that we have far more in common with anyone, with anyone who holds the truth of the gospel, the clear things. We have far more in common with them than not, wherever we land on other peripheral issues. And we need to pursue that deep, lasting unity with those people. So, when it comes to biblical things, we pursue unity on what is clear, and we are charitable on what is cloudy. We believe the best, and we're charitable toward others. Now, beyond these biblical categories, there are also many things that fall into what we call a cultural category. In our passage today, Paul highlights the fact that he brought Titus along with him on his journey to Jerusalem. Titus, as I said before, was a Greek, a Gentile, not Jewish, not circumcised. And yet Paul makes it clear that Titus was not forced to be circumcised because circumcision was a Jewish cultural distinctive. It wasn't a clear biblical distinctive. And because the gospel was the basis for unity, Titus didn't have to get circumcised. He didn't need to adopt the cultural trappings of the Jews in order to be right with God. He would believed the clear truth of the gospel, and so he was in. Cultural things like that, like circumcision, can never be our reason for division. So cultural things are things like your ethnicity, your nationality, your politics, your preferences in food or music or clothing. They're things that may be informed by biblical wisdom, but about which the Bible is either silent or noncommittal. And as the case of Titus makes clear, believers ought never force their cultural trappings upon others. Let me be clear here. Gospel believers never draw lines based on cultural issues alone. Never. Unity is based in the clear truth of the gospel, not on the color of your skin, not on your country of origin, not on your socioeconomic status, your education level, your political party, your favorite sports team, where you live, where you choose to send your kids to school, homeschool or public school or private school or whatever. Not on the neighborhood you live in. Our unity doesn't come from those things. It doesn't come from cultural, contextual issues. It comes from clear truths of the gospel. And when we only seek unity with people who are culturally like us, or worse, when we intentionally exclude people who are culturally unlike us, we are forgetting and fundamentally denying the truth of the gospel. The gospel that is for everyone, regardless of background. The gospel says that whatever your past and really whatever your present, if you believe the truth of the gospel, if you receive Jesus alone, then God welcomes you with open arms into his family of faith. You don't have to check your culture at the door. In fact, you need to bring it with you and add it to the beautiful tapestry of God's omnicultural family. So here's the point. Anyone who holds to the truth of the gospel must be included in our Christian unity. And anyone who doesn't hold to the truth of the gospel can't be included in that Christian unity. Because fundamentally, the basis for God's people, the basis for unity of God's people, is always and only the truth of the gospel. So that's our second lesson, the basis of unity. Here's the third and final one. The purpose of unity. What is that unity for? 
In short, unity is for mission. Look at verses 9 and 10. In verse 9, the leaders of the Jerusalem church give the right hand of fellowship to Paul and Barnabas. The right hand of fellowship is a funny way of just saying they shook hands on it. They shook hands in agreement. This was the conclusion of their meeting in Jerusalem. So you can envision James, Peter, John, Paul, and Barnabas standing up from their seats, walking in the middle of the room, shaking hands with each other and saying, yeah, we're good. And notice what came next. It says, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the, uncircum- to, and they to the circumcised. In other words, their handshake was more like a football huddle. They came in, they circled up, they put their hands in the middle, they said, go team, and then they went out to run the play. They were all sent out on mission. And it's here that we see the key thing about unity in our passage today. Unity is ultimately not about us. It's not ultimately about us having a great group of friends. Though Christian unity genuinely, generally will result in you having a great group of friends. It's not ultimately about us having a network of people who can help us when we're going through a tough time. Though Christian unity usually will mean that you will have that kind of network of people around you. But the benefits that we gain personally from unity, they're all secondary. The real purpose of unity that we see in this text is God's mission. Our unity is essential to God's mission and our unity exists for the purpose of sending us out on that mission. The purpose of our unity is to propel the mission of God forward in the world. Division destroys, but unity propels. Unity sends us out on God's mission. Now look at, again at verses 9 and 10. Because here we see that mission on display. So in verse 9, Paul and Barnabas are sent out on mission to preach the gospel to Gentiles, while the other apostles are sent to the Jews. This is the mission of gospel proclamation. And this makes perfect sense in the flow of Paul's letter. He's been talking about the good news of the gospel. And they're all going to go out now and they're going to tell people that good news. They're going to speak about Jesus to people. But now look at verse 10. On the surface, verse 10 may seem like it doesn't quite fit. See, this whole text up to now has been focused on the gospel, on the good news. So preaching it to others in verse 9 makes perfect sense. But where does remembering the poor come in? For Paul and for the leaders in the church, remembering the poor was just a natural application of a principle that runs throughout the whole of Scripture and finds its roots in the very nature and character of God himself. You see, the gods of the ancient world, they were almost universally associated with the powerful and the wealthy in society. You were successful or wealthy or powerful in life because the gods favored you. But the God of the Bible is really different from that. If you ever read through the Bible, one of the things that you you just can't escape is how frequently and consistently God God reveals himself as a God who cares for and identifies with the poor and the powerless. And God's concern for the vulnerable shows up in a way, in in the very way that he structured the nation of Israel. Theologians who study the Old Testament, they, they frequently speak of God's preferential option for the poor. Because the very laws of Israel were deliberately biased in favor of the poor. 
They were designed to prevent generational poverty and to protect the most vulnerable in society. And so faithful Jews like Paul and Peter and John and James, they couldn't help but remember the poor. And God's concern for the poor then shows up in the life and ministry of Jesus himself. In Matthew 25, Jesus goes so far as to say that if you aren't caring for the poor and vulnerable, then you don't even know him. So when you get to Paul in the early church, it was only natural that they should remember the poor. Because of the gospel, they knew the God who cared for the poor. And so the early Christians were naturally a people who themselves cared for the poor. Not only did they boldly preach the gospel with their words, but they also boldly lived out the gospel with their generosity and their care for the vulnerable. And throughout most of church history, this was the norm. Scholars note that Christianity was actually the major, the major catalyst for urban renewal and wholesale transformation of cities in the Greco-Roman world in the first few centuries after Christ. You think cities are, are crowded and chaotic and messy today? A few millennia ago, they were a whole lot worse. And Christianity was the catalyst to transform them and, and spark the movement that has led to the rise of our modern cities. Christians in those cities sacrificially cared for the poor, the sick, the orphan, the refugee, the outcast, the least, and the lost. And this was then a huge reason why Christianity grew from being this obscure backwater religion in a far-off corner of the Roman Empire to becoming the dominant religious tradition in the entirety of the Greco-Roman world in the span of just a few hundred years. The message that believers in Jesus preached with their, demonstrated with their lives, so compellingly and beautifully illustrated the message that they preached with their lips. They remembered the poor even as they preached the good news. Gospel demonstration went right along with gospel proclamation. Over the last century or so, though, that really hasn't always been the case. In our context today, here in America, there's often this rift between those who emphasize one or the other of those things. People who are committed to things like evangelism and discipleship and Bible study and preaching of the word often look with skepticism or, or distrust at people who are focused on, on social justice and works of activism in, in the community. And there are a lot of historical reasons for that. But in our text here today, we see that unity sent everyone out on the singular, united mission of gospel demonstration and proclamation. For the apostles, the mission wasn't either or. It was both and. And both of those things are still essential to the unified mission of God's church in the world today. Proclamation and demonstration, they mutually enhance and reinforce one another. They go together in our mission. And Christians are at our best when we are boldly preaching the good news of Jesus alone and at the same time radically and sacrificially demonstrating care and concern for the vulnerable when we're active in the community. When we do those two things together, we are living out the unified mission of God in the world. And then our neighbors and our community and our city takes us seriously and listens to what we have to say. One of the best things, one of the best things in my view about where we are in Rogers Park 
is that right here we have so many opportunities to do both of those things. All around us are people who don't know Christians and haven't heard the good news and need to hear the gospel preached. And at the same time, all around us are, are the real tangible needs of a world in need. There's hurting and pain like Jason was talking about earlier. Th those issues are real in our community. And God has brought us to this neighborhood and given this beautiful opportunity to preach and demonstrate the good news of Jesus to our neighborhood. It's an awesome opportunity and an awesome responsibility that he's given to us. And the best part about it is that we're doing it. By God's grace, we really have this beautiful gospel unity in our church. If you're visiting with us, you're just joining us today, you got to know that about us. Like this, this is a community, the people you're sitting around love each other really well. There's a profound unity here. And so many of you, you're pouring your lives out together in both word and deed for the sake of the gospel. You're living out the mission of God together in our neighborhood and our city are being transformed bit by bit, piece by piece. You're doing exactly what unity is supposed to do. And I just want to say today that as your brother and as part of your community, I'm proud of you. And it's a joy to get to run this race alongside of you. Well done. But I also want to issue a challenge to some of you here today. If you're a partner here and you're in a small group, this is not directed to you. And if you're just visiting with us this morning, this isn't for you either. Okay, I'm not talking to you. But I want to speak directly to those of you who have been coming around for a while, but who haven't yet taken that next step to really get united with our church community. If you're here today and you're serious about being united with God and his people on mission, there are two really practical things that you need to do. The first thing you need to do is you need to join a small group. Small groups are where life happens in our church. They're the venues where you experience that substantial unity based in the truth and where you go after the mission together with others week in and week out. So if you're not in a small group today, don't leave here today without changing that. There's going to be deacons up here after the service. Come up and talk to them and get yourself into a small group. And then after you join a small group, the second thing you need to do is you need to become a partner here at Park. Jason talked about the partnership class coming up in a couple weeks. And partners are people who join with us as a church community in order to have the opportunity to exercise their spiritual gifts, to be held accountable by the community, and to be challenged to keep growing and keep going after the mission together in a deeper way. And so if you're serious about this unity thing, you need to become a partner. So sign up for the class and join us in this mission. Become a partner. So that's our third lesson on unity. The purpose of unity is mission. So let me wrap this up, okay? If I could summarize everything that I just said, what it means for all of us here today, here, here today it would be this. Stay the course together. Stay the course together. Take a look at this picture. I wish, uh, I wish Phil were here this morning. He's preaching at another location because um, he would love this. But Joe and Kay O'Regan are an Irish couple. They're in their 80s now. 
And back in 1986, for their 50th birthdays, Kay suggested that they do something fun that would be a little bit different. She proposed that uh, Joe and her run a marathon together. They'd never done a marathon before. And she said, hey, Joe, why don't we go and train and as 50-year-olds run our first marathon? And for some reason that I do not understand, Joe said yes. (laughs) So Kay signed them up for the London Marathon. And that year, as they crossed the finish line on their first marathon, Joe grabbed her hand and they held hands as the photographer took their picture as they crossed the finish. It was a beautiful moment. Well, since then, together they've run a total of 142 marathons between them. Kay has run a lot more than Joe, but Joe's averaged about one a year. And they've run in places ranging from Boston to Athens to Berlin to the northern tip of Norway in the midnight sun. You can picture it. Beautiful, right? And so back in 2016, to celebrate their 57th wedding anniversary, 30 years after their first race together, they ran their final race together, a race they decided this would be our last one. They ran the Cork City Marathon in Southern Ireland. Joe and Kay had just turned 80 years old, and they'd been running together for three decades. And this time, with a half mile to go on the race, Joe, one last time, he reached out and he grabbed Kay's hand. And together, this octogenarian couple ran the last half mile of their 142nd marathon together, holding hands across the finish line. And one more time, just like in their first one 30 years earlier, a photographer captured the moment. It's right here. It's a beautiful moment, isn't it? But you know what Joe said about it when he was asked about it later by an interviewer? He said, we're we're, kind of surprised that you're interested in our run. We aren't special or extraordinary. As far as we are concerned, running is just something we do. Here's the point today. The same is true for us. Running the gospel race together is just what Christians do. We run together. And so like these guys, let's stay the course together. Now I'm going to ask you all to close your eyes and bow your heads. The band's going to come up. And and in a second, I'm going to pray. But first, I want to give you all a few moments to reflect and talk with the Lord this morning. In light of this sermon, some of us need to confess some things. Maybe there's some division or disunity in your life somewhere. That you need to confess and ask the Lord's help so you can pursue unity once again. Maybe you need to confess some ways that you've drawn boundaries over cloudy or cultural issues and created unnecessary division in the church. Maybe you're compromising on clear issues of gospel truth and you're putting yourself in danger of being rightly cut off from the true community of God's people. And if you aren't experiencing disunity anywhere, you can take some time to pray that the unity we do experience in our church would continue. Pray that we as a church would be a people who stay the course together over the long haul. There are deacons up front 
If you need to talk with someone or get some help with a particular situation, or you just want someone to pray with you or for you, I'll give you a minute now to talk with the Lord, and then I'll close this in prayer. Father, we thank you for the church. We thank you for the unity that we have here. We pray that it will continue over the long haul. Would you keep us faithful to run the race, the gospel race. Give us wisdom about where to draw lines and where not to. And help us to stay the course together. We pray that in the beautiful name of Jesus.